Are you recording? Yeah. So you're getting all the thunder? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. All right, there we go. Let's rock and roll. This is the AT Banter Podcast. A balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Flurry, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything regarding assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Okay, what what happened? <laughs> what happened? Where are my banter banters? The missing link is gone. I know. He's again, not here. <laughs> again. Hottest day of the year and he's not here. That's right. I'm suspicious. He's That's right. Deck with a bevy. All right, hold on. We got so we're we're we getting ahead of ourselves. Mm. Uh, my name is Robin O. And joining me today, Ryan Flurry. Howdy. And no Steve Barkley. Nope. And that's all we'll say about that. That's right. Because we're hot and he's probably not. Well, he might be. He hot. might be. He might be. Uh, no, Steve couldn't join us today, so it's just Ryan and I. Um, hey, Ryan. Yes, sir. Uh, you know what? I I don't think we should dilly dally. Okay. At all, I, I think we should uh, get right to today's episode because this is going to be a very good one. I, I'm excited about this. Uh, tell people who we are talking to today. Today, we are talking with entrepreneur, advocate, and pioneer in the assistive technology field, Mike May. All right. Well, you know what? Let's, without further ado. I do? Let's bring him on. Bring him on. Bring him on. Lock him up. <laughs> Mike May. Hi, Mike. It's Ryan. How are you? Ryan, good. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. In the room, I have Rob Minot. Hey, hello there. Hi, Rob. And Mr. Barclay couldn't make it today. Okay. So yeah. it's just the three of us. He's probably got his, his feet in a swimming pool somewhere. With a cold drink in his hand. All right. Well, we got a lot to talk to you about, clearly. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get this party started. Um, Dive in. Well, you know, and first of all, you know, we have to we have to say, you know, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Um, you know, we know you're 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 a busy guy, clearly. So we, we really appreciate you taking some time out. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. So why don't we start at the beginning and maybe just give us a little bit of an overview for, for those people who, are, who aren't familiar with your story um, and tell us a little bit about how you originally lost your sight. I lost my sight from a chemical explosion when I was three and a half years old in Silver City, New Mexico. It resulted from an inquisitive kid that being me climbing up into the rafters of a garage and getting a bottle that had white powder in it down and taking it over to some water to rinse it out because I wanted to use the bottle to make mud pies. (laughs) And that powder happened to be calcium carbide, which is used in miners' lanterns because it doesn't require a lot of oxygen to burn underground. Mm. And when you mix water with that powder, calcium carbide powder, it turns to acetylene gas. Yikes. And that wouldn't have been a problem except for I happen to be next to a pile of burning garbage. Oh, no. So a spark from the garbage hit the plume of acetylene gas and blew me sky high. Wow. 
So I ended up in a hospital for about six months, was lucky to live. I had over 300 stitches in my three-year-old body, and that's where it all began. And so as a result of that, you, sort of what was, what was life like sort of growing up, you know, in, through elementary school and high school for you? Well, my, uh, fortunately, my mother in particular was a very inquisitive, strong person. And um, I think a lot of people could uh, point back to super moms in their lives that, that you know, were like her and did this sort of thing because I didn't know anything. You know, I was just a blind kid in the regular kindergarten in New Mexico. And she looked around the country for for the best school for me to go into and decided rather than having me go to a, a blind school, which at that time in the late fifties would have been a normal matter of course, she found a more integrated school in Walnut Creek, California. So the whole family moved lock, stock and barrel. My dad had to get a new job and we moved to that area also because my eye doctor was in San Francisco. But she considered another school, I think in Long Beach, California. But that school system in Walnut Creek had the old style of schooling where there would be, not every blind kid was at their own school. You were all bused together to one school. So it was 10 or 15 blind kids with a resource teacher, which I happen to think was the best of both worlds because you got to be in an integrated, sighted environment, but you also had the support of a teacher who could teach you Braille. And these days, itinerant teachers spend 40% of their time on the road rather than with students. So right. I think some unfortunate time lost of resources there. But that's right. what I grew up with and um, spent most of my elementary and high school years in uh, Walnut Creek, California. So just to be a little nostalgic for a second, what was your first Braille device? Other, I guess Slayton Stylus was what you were probably using. I used a Slayton Stylus and certainly a Perkins, of, of which I have one sitting on my desk right now, <laughs> right next to my to my Braille note and my PC and my iPhone and um, my blind colleague right down the hall. He's got one, too. So the Perkins lives on. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you this. Um, do you feel that being in that inclusive school really made that huge difference? Because, you know, that, that is a, a really unique um, choice, uh, especially given the time. There, there, you know, there was, all, you know, all kinds of schools for the blind and deaf and, you know, and, and all these special schools. And I think that the, the consensus is, looking back, that, it, that it's not really an ideal environment. Um, do do you feel like really lucky that that you were able to to attend an inclusive school like that? Yeah, you know. By the way, I, what I don't have on my desk that I had back then was an abacus. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I I think that it was a real nice hybrid arrangement. You could still um, stick to your blind friends. <clears throat> so within 15 people, you could easily, I mean, most of us have two or three or four friends that we hang out with anyway. And so there was a tendency for some of the blind kids to just hang out with the other blind kids. And I suppose being in a school all by yourself, you had no choice. But I think given the trade-offs between learning good, strong Braille skills and 
having your materials provided in Braille daily was a much better solution than what I see in some of the schools where a blind kid has a full-time assistant. And uh, unless you're going to be a blind lawyer or something, I, I'm not sure most people sure. grow up into the professional world having a full-time assistant around. Right. Although one could argue, you know, maybe today Ira is the modern version of that. <laughs> uh, we get a little pricey. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it, it does. So but, you know, you have to be my eyes. So there's, That's you know, there's true. different options out there. That's true. Okay, well then, let's fast forward a little bit then. What the heck got you into downhill skiing? Because <laughs> this part I'm fascinated yeah. by. <laughs> well, I've, I've always been interested in different sports. And I, in elementary school, I played anything I could. Flag football. If they let me play baseball, I would play. I, I just loved sports and uh, and when I was before kids got a lot bigger than me, I, I loved football and I, I liked tackle football because it was a way a, a blind guy who was pretty much on par with the sighted person. Flag football got a little trickier. And then once you got to just regular football, that, that just wasn't a place for a blind person. And I had friends that skied when I went to and were, was in high school. And then certainly in college, when I went to UC Davis, we were only about an hour from the slopes, and friends skied. And that's really what I started becoming interested and just never pulled it off until, you know, one faded day, one of one of my friends who's, who's influenced a lot of major things in my life, a guy named Rob Reese, uh, and he, he was a skier, and he got me to go up with him, and I connected with Ron Saviola, who had started a blind ski program at Kirkwood near Lake Tahoe and uh, Ron and some other people got me going skiing and I was hooked. It was just, it was, it's such a visual sport. And when you can, it's almost like defying gravity or something, you know, you can defy the odds with something that's so visual and say, you know what, it may be visual, but Hey, there's workarounds and here's how we do it. And, the degree to which you enjoy it and make the most of it is what you put into it. So you work with a guide, particularly the same guide, you get better, you learn different techniques, you get to be a better skier more than anything. The more you ski, the better you get. Uh, the whole equation starts working and it, um, it's really exciting. And that was then stimulated by getting invited to a competition and the the prize for winning that competition was an all expense paid trip to the national ski event and i so i won that competition outside of los angeles and then ended up going to ironwood michigan to compete in the us nationals uh, a couple i don't know a month or so after that and uh, that's that's where my whole competitive skiing thing just took off from there so how long did you do it for? Well, I'm still skiing. Um, the, the big thing back then was that 98% of people skied with the guide behind them because it's easier on the guide. They can look ahead, see where the blind person is, guide them down a gentle slope, you know, go ski to 1 o'clock, ski to 11 o'clock, and that's how blind skiing was mostly taught. 
and Ron and his program, which I eventually got involved in running, did it the other way around with the guide in front. And that requires more skill on the guide's part, a better skier, and also learning some techniques, how to look back and look forward in a safe in a safe fashion. Right. And um, so once we refined that technique and we went to an international, our first international competition, and we cleaned up, we won three gold medals by a significant margin, the whole world of competitive skiing shifted. Hmm. When we came back to the next Paralympics in Innsbruck, Austria, uh, everybody had switched. And so I only wow. took bronze in, in that competition because I got beaten out by other people who'd switched to front guiding. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of cool. A pioneer, even before you thought yeah. you'd be. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell us about your record that is still, I think, current today. That's right. I always kid that if you want to hold a record for something for a long time, pick something that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> well, you definitely aren't so, chicken. You know, eat, I mean, eating hot dogs or something would probably have more competition than blind downhill speed skiing. It's true. It's 65 miles an hour. And it started out because we realized that I could compete equally with sighted people speed skiing, whereas in gates, a blind person, totally blind person, could not get as close to the gates as a sighted person because it's such a precision event. In speed skiing, it's a matter of get the right equipment, learn the right techniques, get a steep hill, and <laughs> get some radios, point them down. Once the guy gets you pointed straight, then it's just all a matter of technique how fast you go. The tricky part is slowing down, <laughs> and that means the guide will tell you break out and so you stand up in kind of a slow fashion so you don't get blown over and you slow down and you have to have a big run out because you don't want to have to stop on a dime. Mm -hmm. That was the tricky part. So we found some competitions that had a really wide run out and one of them was in Whistler Blackholm and mm -hmm. they, the insurance companies for those resorts wouldn't allow us to compete. Jeez. And turns out that that was the case around the U.S. and Canada. We just could not find a place that would let me speed ski. Uh, eventually, we found uh, if we went to Europe, they didn't care. <laughs> and um, there was a resort that particularly catered to um, speed skiing, and I've there's a French word for it. The, the abbreviation is KL, um, something lancé, and uh, kilomètre lancé. And so we went to Les Arts and uh, we worked our way up the hill. You know, each time you go a little bit higher, you go a little faster. And uh, we were doing training runs in 40, 50, 60, 65, 80 miles an hour. <laughs> The only time that we really got clocked was at 65, and um, because it was training, our goal was 100 miles an hour, and the big boys who were there would go 130, 135, the sighted skiers. So as an, as an amateur, I really wanted to break 100. And unfortunately, the, a snowstorm came in. It did not let up for a week. 
and you can't speed ski in, in powder. So we eventually had to give up and go home hmm. and say, we'll just come back and do it next year, which never happened. The 65 miles an hour stood. Um, I was able to compete with sighted uh, amateur speed skiers uh, at one other event eventually that where the insurance company either didn't know or for whatever reason they let us go ahead and do it. Uh, and they would typically go in that same range of 65, 70 miles an hour. So I have to ask, were you not afraid of crossing your ski tips? <laughs> Ooh, I hate that. Uh, you know, I had a love-hate relationship with speed skiing, <laughs> and that was when I'm up at the top of the hill and I'm getting ready to go on these 240-something centimeter skis, I said, if I make it down, I'm never doing this again in my life. <laughs> and I get down to the bottom, and I get down to the bottom, I think, ah, I'm just going to do it one more time. I think I can do it a little faster. So you're, you're, you it's, are in a... such a mind game. You are an adrenaline junkie then. I, I was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, uh, speaking of pioneering, uh, let's skip ahead a little bit more. Um and talk about founding Sendero. Um, how did all that come about? And what, what prompted you, what gave you the idea to, to found it in the first place? This was also a very selfish approach, or it's probably a really practical approach, because if you, if you want to apply yourself to something and it happens to benefit you personally, uh, it's, it's a good thing to do, and that's really was the case with GPS. In the in the 90s, um, you think of the options that we had for getting around independently, stopping somebody on a street corner. My rule was always ask five people for directions and then average the answers. Right. And that you know that was a technique most blind people use because you couldn't depend on sighted people. They wanted to be helpful, and in fact, they weren't when they give you wrong directions. So when GPS started coming out, and it really became first available in 1984 after the the Korean airliner got shot down and Ronald Reagan uh, decided, well, hey, we're going to make the GPS position available to all entities so something like this doesn't happen again. Right. And uh, But in the, in the mid-90s, which is when I got involved, GPS was relatively available not like it is today, but to uh, particularly to commercial and to boating, marine activities. Right. And um, that's when I I got involved with it and realized, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable that I can have all this information uh, at my fingertips. And that's still the case today, and it's still re reasonably the same kind of data, map data and points of interest, businesses, the difference is we were you know, working with a 12-pound backpack with a laptop computer, two antennas, <laughs> chargers, cables. I mean, it was quite the cobbled-together Rube Goldberg contraption. <laughs> but ultimately, I was still getting the same data back in 1995. It's a little better today, a little richer, but roughly the same thing now as, as I got then. And so Sendero evolved out of my first involvement uh, with the adaptive tech business in uh, with Arkenstone, 
and their reading machines and Arkenstone came up with the Strider, which is the backpack system I'm talking about, and then Atlas Speaks was a map system. And this is probably back in the time when I first met Steve Barkley and Aroga, and we were all getting involved in, in the adaptive tech business. And I worked for Arkenstone for a few years and then was able to spin off Sendero because it, GPS just wasn't practical quite yet, and they decided to drop the project. Yeah, I mean, I would think that that trajectory of, of GPS over that, say, what, 10, 15 years would have been would have been really fascinating because it really it really evolved fairly quickly. What was that like? Um, it it did, and you see this with other technologies like voice recognition. For years, voice recognition was just drag and dictate and high end, expensive, yeah. limited application. And now it's you know it's Siri, it's Alexa. Whoops, yeah. I shouldn't have said that. She's going to talk back to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I don't know that. <laughs> um, yeah, and and so GPS was really the same way that it was only the hardcore people in you know, from '95 to let's say 2003 or even 2005 right. who had much to do with GPS. So our initial units, and this is why it wasn't commercially viable at Arkenstone, uh, started out on a laptop, and then with the Braille Note we really turned a corner to a smaller unit. Uh, and then once the Braille note was on the market, some others said, oh, hey, um, boy, this GPS is probably a good thing to have. And it got added to some other units, like the uh, the Trekker products right. that first came out in oh, 2003 or five or something in there. Uh, and then it wasn't, and then we had it on the, some smartphones. We had something called uh, Mobile Speak and Mobile Geo that were uh, on cell phones, but not quite to the point that they are on iPhones. Right. And then, of course, in 2007 and eight, when we turned the corner and got iPhones going, that became a possibility, although we didn't add GPS to the iPhone until 2012. And 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 that's I, I I'm assuming that that's really when uh, GPS really turned the corner. Yeah, I think it really did. I mean, the GPS receivers got better. Certainly, when President Clinton took off the selective availability, so the accuracy went from 100 yards to 10 yards. That was a huge factor in 2001, and that started opening up the door. Once that door was open, then it took some years, five, ten years for things to really turn around. And now the the smartphones have a chip that contain GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. All the radios are in one small $2 chip, which is absolutely phenomenal when you think mm -hmm. back to a 12-pound backpack that used to have to right. do somewhat the same thing and not as well. And now GPS is in, in, in everything. You just don't put out a device now that doesn't have... Bluetooth, uh, GPS, and Wi-Fi in it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that is sort of my question. Given that GPS landscape these days, um, where where is Sendero these days? Well, Sendero has probably done its incremental growth as far as where where it's going and what it can do. Um, things have moved on to some other frontiers, and Sendero has too. The 
the focus right now has been on indoor navigation, which is what's become the new frontier for navigation in the last couple of years. Everybody's excited about beacons. Right. And it's that's nice to see because previously, I mean, indoor navigation is not a new concept. We worked on a grant in 1996 for indoor navigation. Hmm. And we did another one where, where we had a, uh, a called a dead reckoning module along with fluorescent lights where we did some navigation indoors with, at Stanford in around 2005 or so. Uh, so it's, it's not new. It's just that Bluetooth beacons um, have taken off commercially, and there's a lot of companies working on them as an indoor navigation possibility. It would appear that that is now turning another corner, and we're moving towards potentially Wi-Fi fingerprinting, which means that you don't have to install a whole infrastructure of indoor things in order to have indoor navigation. So you could have kind of like a mesh network? Well, it's just you you could have a mesh network, um, but... The, the Wi-Fi fingerprinting means that at any place that you stand, there are probably multiple wireless signals that create an identity at that spot. And some bright Stanford kids 10 years ago figured out that if you developed an algorithm that could identify that individual spot, that's why they call it fingerprinting, it's unique to that square foot in space. Uh, if, and if you can update that as the signals change and as they get interfered with, then you would have a way of identifying where somebody is just from the Wi-Fi signals in the air and not by putting anything in your environment. Okay. So it's not exactly Wi-Fi triangulation the way it is with GPS trilateration, um, but it's, it's that sort of thing using Wi-Fi to know where you are. So it's it's kind of interesting because it sounds like, you know, to the consumer and, and to sort of the layperson, it, it always feels like this technology is new because it's it's sort of the first time that it's it's being seen on a consumer level. But it sounds like in reality that the technology has been there for a while. It's just it's just that once it, it finally leaks and trickles down to the consumer level, that's when it, it, it really starts to take off and, and really start to evolve. You're exactly right, and I always cringe when I see an article that comes out and it says, I just saw one the other day. It said, first blind students to ever navigate a campus independently at Columbia, Columbus State. And I thought, who's, you know, what, where's that coming from? My gosh, <laughs> blind people have been using GPS navigation, certainly navigating independently in colleges long time before us. Right. But with, if you want to just limit it to GPS, that's been happening for 10, 15 years. Uh, the, the techniques change a little bit, uh, but certainly using beacons. Uh, here in Wichita, we, ha we have beacons at all the bus stops. Hmm. Um, so the same sort of navigation to be talking about at a, at a school campus. And they're talking about Blind Square in particular. Right. And Blind Square has done a great job both with their app and also with um, putting in beacons and doing some indoor navigation stuff. So it, it, it is cool that that's happening. I just, I guess I cringe when I hear somebody saying it's the first time it's ever happened anywhere. 
So let me ask you about some emerging technology. What what do you sort of see on the horizon that that really excites you or, or that you think could be sort of the next big thing? Well, I'm particularly enamored by home automation. And I think that's really, I, I, I hear more and more, uh, both sighted and blind people, and maybe even more from blind people getting excited about it, because there's certain things that we've had a little bit of a dry spell in terms of, uh, you know, when, when touch screens came around, all of a sudden we hit this hole uh, in, in accessibility that's now being filled by having uh, mobile apps that give us access to things. So, for example, the Whirlpool washer-dryer that I have has a beautiful curved panel that doesn't have a bump on it. <laughs> and it's all nice lights and touchscreen. So you get even within a, a, an inch of that thing, and all of a sudden the, the settings are getting changed. Hmm. So it's hopeless for a blind person. Even putting locator dots on it is doesn't help you much, but the app completely operates it. I don't need that front panel uh, for, for much of anything. And I can run the whole washer dryer and get announcements of when my clothes are going to be finished and all of that <clears throat> from an app. Uh, same thing with, with touch panel ovens, microwaves, refrigerators. I mean, something as simple as a refrigerator has a panel that's flat and you can't even change from ice cubes to water because you've deactivated the thing or <clears throat> put it in some other strange mode. Uh, how do you operate those things? You can operate them through map apps, or if you find if you happen to find one of the old-fashioned one with knobs or buttons, then you might be fortunate. But anything new coming out is all going to be touch panels. But now that people are adding apps to also work with their appliances. Uh, that's really exciting. And you take it a step further with lights. You know, a blind person doesn't know when the lights are on. Well, now they, they can through their <laughs> echo devices, um, thermostats, uh, vacuums. I, <clears throat> I have a, a shark vacuum. And, it, you know, the list goes on of all the home automation stuff. I think it's really exciting to see that happening. Yeah, and I think one of the concerns I have, I guess, is the best way to phrase it. You know, you talk about your, your washing machine and how it has a touch panel, yet, you know, the app is accessible for you. You know, I also heard a year ago that I think Philips came out with a line of Blu-ray players and 4K players that actually had, you know, speech output as well. You could go in and turn on the voice and it was accessible. All the menus would talk and so on. But my concern is that I don't hear these manufacturers talking about the accessibility in their products. So I think they're missing the boat. They're, they're missing a market there. You know, the only way to find out about some of these products that could be accessible to us is either by talking to someone like yourself. I didn't know Whirlpool had an app that was accessible. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a yeah, market. Yeah, Samsung, push. you know, there's, you're absolutely right, and you touch on one of my, my favorite ideas, um, and that is a product's recommendation list mm -hmm. because not everybody wants to go through and search out out of a hundred different dishwashers, which one is accessible. Right. Just tell me, I don't <laughs> want to do the research. And if one blind guy does it, 
can't we use crowdsourcing or some other mechanism for finding out what is accessible and then the rest of the community can take advantage of it? I think we can do that. And uh, it's incumbent upon the manufacturers to help facilitate that information so that if they have, if Whirlpool or Samsung has 50 different ovens, uh, which one is most accessible? Mm-hmm. Boil it down to that at the very least. And then what about support for those devices? I think there's some, some interesting things that can be done in terms of support, but it's got to start with identifying the most accessible products to begin with. And if there are workarounds, uh, somebody communicating what those workarounds are. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, 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 Attitudes are changing. You know, I think companies are more and more realizing that we're consumers too, and we have dollars to spend. Um, mm-hmm. If they want to reach us, <laughs> they got to advertise to us and let us know. So, you know, I think that is changing, but there's just still a lot more work to be done. There sure is. Well, I mean, ideally, you know, you, you, we we want to get it to the to the point of you know where where. Um, Inclusive design is just a thing. Like mm-hmm. there, it's not even a matter of needing to find out what's the most accessible, uh, you know, appliance out there. They they're just all accessible. Right. It's just built, baked right into the design of you know of of every single manufacturer's product. You know, and that's you know I know that's a bit pie in the sky, um, but I mean not really. You know, if if inclusive design really takes hold. Um, the way that you know it's starting to it's certainly starting to get a lot more traction than it than it did 10 years ago even um it 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 could it could happen you know especially with with the advent of this of this idea of the smart home well and if if apps can be the window into the accessibility if an app is if my phone is my portal to access my kitchen then the the manufacturer's responsibility is to make their darn apps accessible. Right. That's not hard. It's a lot easier to label a button in an app <laughs> than it is to put a bump on a button in, on a on the hardware. Yeah. So I'm I'm really of the mind that this is where the pressure needs to be put on these manufacturers to make not just their websites accessible, but to make their apps 100% accessible. Here, here. Yep, you're, yeah. you're you're preaching you're preaching to the choir, I, and you know and, and yeah. I mean you know it, it is frustrating because you know how long have web accessibility standards been around and uh, they still haven't caught up with that and that's been what 15, 20 years now. Yeah, they they evolve, but um, the app app accessibility. You know, Apple has guidelines for accessibility, but there's not really any policing that that looks to see whether somebody follows those guidelines or not. Right. And, you know, a lot of times companies get lucky and their apps are 100% accessible. Other times there's these just button, button, button. Yep. <laughs> you don't know what it is. Not unless you double tap it and then label it yourself, <laughs> if you know how. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the other thing is of the future is the, the whole idea of transportation and self-driving cars. Yes, uh, I, I think that the best thing that's happened this century is rideshare. I'm a huge Uber user. Don't get me started and on rideshare. Worked a lot with Uber to make <laughs> their app accessible, and I think it's um, that's been absolutely amazing in terms of how that's impacted my life. 
We still don't have it in Vancouver. I know. I was just I there, and I said, oh, come on. They have it in Edmonton. They I have know. it in uh, Toronto. They've got, you know, no yep. Vancouver. I know. It's it's the biggest beef, I think, in the blindness community right now is it keeps getting postponed, and we're, we're all irate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible. But in terms of the self-driving vehicles, uh, I've been on a number of panels dealing with this, and, and I say, look, I'm just going to skip forward to the point when we have the vehicles. Let's I'll forget about, you know, will it happen next year? Will it happen in five years? It'll happen. <laughs> right. So when it happens, is, is, are we going to be stuck with the same thing again, touch screens with beautiful <laughs> displays, everything that's around us? I want to make sure now, and uh, I've worked with a couple of companies on this exact topic, how are we going to make sure that that information inside of the vehicle, when I'm the only human being inside of that car, how is that being conveyed to me in an accessible fashion? Right. If I get stuck on the freeway and I, I can't go anywhere, I'm, I can't get out and walk to the nearest gas station or anything, what am I going to do? There's a lot of safety mm-hmm. and practical issues that we have to look at. Uh, and I think that's the part of self-driving that we have to be pushing for uh, from the accessibility standpoint. Yeah, and I think, you know, like everything else, it would be nice if there was actually a standard that people could actually develop for. Yeah, standards always help. You know, I I read a really fascinating article about just how much um, the idea of self-driving cars would change the infrastructure of any given city and the ramifications of it all the way down the line. And And it's actually, it's it's very fascinating and it it really could um, change, you know, change the face of mobility, certainly for, for people who are visually impaired or, you know, physically impaired for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also have like huge social implications as well. Um, yeah, when you think about it, in, in any given town at any time, there's probably... of vehicles are parked in a garage or somewhere. You know, the other 20% are on the road. And that's such a huge waste of resources, expensive for people. If if we can get to a society where that's just not happening, a vehicle comes and picks you up when you need to go somewhere, and all of a sudden we've reduced the population of cars and how that impacts the, uh, the environment, the cost of transportation all, all you know across the board it'd be a huge societal uh, benefit yeah it really would so i mean we, we, we fingers crossed that you know and, and again yeah. it's, it's all a matter of the technology is there it's it's all in place it just needs to mm-hmm. to have that time to trickle down to where you know it's consumer ready as long as my yeah. pizza can and it's starting with things like the uh, the IBM Ollie in Las Vegas Yep. which is a, a shuttle that, that just buzzes around a certain route, defined area, and it's just about a, a eight-passenger, ten-passenger shuttle bus. Works great. Hmm. Google Home or Amazon Echo? Uh, I'm an Echo guy, but um, <laughs> my, my colleague Mick Diner, he's got both, and I am going to get a uh, a Google because our thermostat system on my new floor here has a Mitsubishi thermostat that works with something called Kumo Cloud, and it only has a Google interface, no <laughs> Amazon. 
the uh, moment. Just a little Google Home Mini. So, yeah. So, you know, we're going to have to have both. Well, um, I would mention just the, the cool thing that's happening here with, with my recent uh, chapter in life is moving to Wichita, Kansas to join Envision, which is one of the bigger blindness agencies in North America. And uh, like many of the agencies, they, they have a, an emphasis on manufacturing. There's about 250 blind people in manufacturing and realizing that the world's changing and a lot of blind people want to have choices. So let's create more tech jobs. So that's my job is to create more tech jobs, uh, both in call centers and in app testing and development. So we talk about these apps that don't work. I, believe me, I'm going to the these manufacturers and saying, we can test your apps and make them better. Mm-hmm. That benefits everybody and it creates jobs. And I think a lot of blind people love to have a job. If you know you came to work every day and you're supposed to get on there and find out uh, what buttons aren't labeled and point out to somebody how they should be labeled. Yeah. So we've got this brand new floor, 12,500 square foot floor that's a um, great modern facility that's ready and waiting to be inhabited by lots of blind people to uh, take on these kinds of jobs. On my way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got lots of partnerships happening because obviously not everybody wants to move to Wichita. I consider it an, an adventure. Well, but, uh, you know, can't convince everybody of that. Well, and that's just it. You know, I was thinking to myself the other day, you know, you started in California. And then last I saw, I think you were at Seattle Lighthouse. And, and now you're in Wichita. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this guy's covering the country. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never, never been in this middle part of the country. It's, it's quite different. Yeah. So actually, tell us a little bit about where we yeah, where where you've landed and what you're up to now. So I'm working on this workforce innovation center at Envision, and um, I'm I'm living here and you know learning this part of the world. And I you know I would not have moved here if it weren't for the fact that they had Uber and Lyft. <laughs> um, they have, they have reasonable transportation. It's not as bad as some places. Wichita happens to be the biggest city in Kansas. All. 400,000 people. Um, so it has a bus system, and I can take the bus to and from uh, home to work. But uh, when it's really hot, as it is now, or it's super cold, uh, I'd rather be getting a ride. And so um, working out both the practical and the business side of uh, living in this in this part of the world. But it's an exciting project to be taking on the, the, the bigger issue, which is 70% unemployment among the blind, and mm-hmm. how do we make a dent in that? It's going to be Envision working together with lots of other uh, organizations uh, of and for the blind, as well as uh, you know different foundations as well, and corporations. Well, that's excellent. We'll have to keep keep an eye on what's going on out there. Yeah. Oh, well, before we let you go then, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or, or uh, anything else that you'd, you want to talk about, about, about the, the project? Um, anywhere that people can reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? I would say uh, keep an eye out, particularly if you're interested in jobs or interesting opportunities. And eventually I'd like to see a situation where people can move here and work in, in our building or work remotely or, or for other you know, we're talking to call centers and companies around the country. 
maybe we help get blind people trained up and recruited to go to those places. So check out the website and see what job opportunities get posted over time. And it's envisionus.com, E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N-U-S dot C-O-M. Perfect. Well, Mike, once again, you know, we got to thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. Uh, it was, it's really fascinating talk and, and you, you know, we didn't even get to a, a whole other part of, <laughs> of your life. Maybe we'll save that for a future episode. Cause I, I would, I would love to All talk right, to you a little bit good. about that as well. Oh yeah. We didn't talk right. about a couple things. Oh, yeah. Well. No, well, you know, we got to leave yeah. something for the sequel. We'll get you back. <laughs> Okay, good. Well, thanks for inviting me and uh, enjoyed talking with you. Thanks All right, so much, perfect, Mike. Mike. Thanks so much. Take care. You Take too. care. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Quite a guy. He's got a long history. Uh-huh. You know, he's very, been very influential and innovative. Yeah, in I, I know. Like, I can't believe that, you know, I, I thought... I thought he, he had come on board like the whole GPS train in the, you know, when, when we first heard of Sendero at, at Aroga. Right. Yeah. But the fact that he'd been, they've been working on it since the mid-90s. Oh, I remember when Nokia had the Symbian operating system on the phones. Right. I, I do remember mobile speak and mobile geo. And that would have been around the mid-2000s, right? Yeah, because I started at Aroga in 2001. So, yeah, early 2000s, mid-2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So, 2003, 2004, yeah. somewhere in there, yeah. Because I remember helping you with those, and uh, mm-hmm. they were a huge pain, <laughs> huge pain. And they trying to pair not Bluetooth well. receivers, and yeah, those fun times. Yeah, and it wasn't you know it wasn't necessarily the GPS technology that was no. the issue. It was just I remember like trying to connect something to Bluetooth, Bluetooth used yep. to be so much of a hassle. Mm-hmm. We take it so much for granted now that you just you know you just hit a button on your smartphone. And Bluetooth connects. Yeah, you but, know, half the time you don't don't have to enter a pairing code anymore. Oh. You know, it's just click, boom, done. Yeah, I mean, I remember literally <laughs> sitting at your desk, like trying for like three hours to get to get that you a know little socket this, Bluetooth GPS yeah, receiver and this yep. Nokia phone connected to it. And it was a nightmare. Yeah. And then we'd go for a walk and it wouldn't work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to get like 30 feet away from a building. That's right. Any sort of yep. overhang, mm-hmm. you wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Yeah, it yep. was so... So yep. flaky, but, but, uh, so we take a lot for granted these days, we do. you know, the last 12 years has just been uh, nothing but a roller coaster ride of technology that it's gotten so good. Yep. And, you know, companies like Google and Apple, you know, in their mapping technology are, are building accessibility into them more and more all the time. So, you know, the future looks bright. Yes, sir. The future looks so bright. We have to wear shades. Mine are upstairs. That was a good song. All right. Anyways, let's uh, let's blast out of here because it's hot and I'm sweating. Yeah, it's cooler cooler down here than outside. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's the headphones. I'm gonna go to Starbucks and and work on the catalog. Excellent. Where they have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Hey Ryan. Yes, sir. Where can people find us? They can find us online at www.atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire, atbanterpodcast at gmail.com. Where can they find Canadian Assistive Technology, Ryan? They can find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. And for Chaos Technical Services, Rob, where can they find him? Uh, they can find Mr. Rick Chant at Chaos Technical Services at www.chaostechnicalservices.com. And, uh, yeah, 
that is going to about do it for us this week. Next week, I'm sure we'll have uh, we'll have a regular show with Mr. Steve back. I'm sure. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe if we know. let him. If we let him, I don't know. He's gonna have to bring beer. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of liked having just the two of us. I almost went there, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. And go listen to my new song. <laughs> oh, you want to plug your new song? Shameless you plug. Can, okay, shame. No, go ahead. Give, give it a shameless plug. All right. To all you AT Banter podcast listeners, I, Ryan, have released a new song called Home, which you can find at my YouTube page, whitecanerecords.com. Check it out. And let me know your thoughts. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com Music provided by bensound.com Whoa, look at that master of the one take
On the show today is entrepreneur, advocate, and a pioneer in the assistive technology field, Mike May. <laughs> 